0: Well, if you ever go to Europe and you tour your way across Europe, you're going to come across these medieval-looking places, a lot of times cathedrals and churches that they often have in the corners of these buildings. Architecturally, they have these gargoyles at the corner of the buildings. Now, in some ways, it's by design a way to get the water because they didn't have rain gutter systems in the same way that we would see in a modern day. But it would get the water to shed away from the building. But they were often thought to frighten away evil spirits and protect those who are inside. Isn't that sweet? How quaint. How unintelligent of them to think that there were, these medieval peasants would be so worried that there was someone come around. They were so superstitious, weren't they? Has anyone ever believed in evil spirits? Aren't we too smart for that nowadays, don't you think? Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, if you're just tuning in online, or many times there's podcasts you'll listen a few days later, I'll introduce myself once again. My name is Pastor Milo, and we are glad that you are here with us. We are going to talk today about demons and evil spirits and how they fit into this world with our great adversary, our sworn enemy, the devil. I've got a friend, a former high school teacher of mine, who just came back from a trip across Europe and he has been in the the countries of Croatia is actually where he spent a lot of his time. He took a lot of different pictures where I was looking through his pictures that he's posting online and just seeing he, he marks a few of them every day and lets you know what they are and you see all these pictures of these cathedrals and these gargoyles and this architecture that we don't see very much anymore. We don't talk about it that much anymore. And we do like to think that we are too smart to believe in things like demons and evil spirits. And we've moved beyond these things and we're too sophisticated to be like this. But we need to hear this this morning that evil spirits are real and they are scary. And they are still very much around and active in today's modern world even if we try to ignore them. Here's what the Bible says. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, be alert and have a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, geesh, it's December 12th. Pastor Milo, this is supposed to be a Christmas sermon. What on earth are you talking about? Is this really what you have planned for today? I'm glad you asked. Yes, yes, yes. It is. Every week we ask you to bring something to write with, bring something to write on, and bring your Bible. So if you've got your Bible this morning, please open to Matthew chapter 2. The passage we just read from Matthew chapter 2, this Christmas narrative. But I'm going to begin right now. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I hope that you've gotten there already. If not, we'll put it on the screen for you. And when they, the Magi, had gone... The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape unto Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod the king, Herod is going to search for your child and kill him. Now, what would make Herod do such a thing? This is a child. This is a baby. He's going to search for the child, He is going to put people out looking for him. He's going to search for him, and he is going to have him killed. Why would Herod do such a terrible thing? Well, we need to hear this this morning as we begin. We need to know your enemy. You need to know your enemy. Today we begins our third week in a sermon series called "The Christmas." Creed, And as we've been going through this creed, we've been going through some familiar passages of the Nativity story, but going to look at them from a not-so-familiar angle. We're going to look at them from a different point of view, a different perspective, a different lens. And as we look at these Christmas texts, we believe that we're going to be able to actually build for ourselves a theological basis, a, a statement of faith that we can grow with and that we can learn from, all coming out of our Christmas Text. We're, going to, we're going to learn from this Christmas text of what does the Bible say about the nature of God. What does the Bible reveal to us about Jesus, about the purpose of the church, or today about the work of the enemy. Know your enemy. Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour And today we're going to look at this cruel act and seemingly uh, intentional act of King Herod here in Matthew 2. But before we can kind of get into Matthew 2, I'm actually going to fast forward us forward so you can see the end scene of what actually is going to happen here. So fast forward with me, if you would, to the first Sunday in the spring, the first Sunday that we call Easter, when an imp or a gargoyle stumbles his way, rushes his way into, this demonic creature is rushing his way into the presence of his satanic majesty, interrupting what has been a two-day celebration there in his realm. They are celebrating the death of Jesus. But then this demon breathlessly announces that the tomb is empty. The body is gone. And the soldiers, they are reporting and they are looking as though they have seen a ghost. And Satan there is spitting out his champagne because something is wrong. What he thought he had all figured out, he had been had and he knows it. He's been defeated and God's hands are once again in total control. See, I want to fast forward there. I want you to see that moment first but it, because it defines the enemy's limits. It defines the enemy's limits. You need to hear this morning and understand that Satan is a created being. He does not share the attributes of Almighty God. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent, meaning that he is not limited in knowledge or in space or in power. No, he is limited in all of those things. He is a created being. And so when it comes, in this passage, it's predicting what God is going to do next. Satan has to rely on what he can figure out, what he can decipher, what he can remember from the timeless past and how he resided in heaven as one of God's favorite angels and as he studies the Holy Scripture. And since the Holy Spirit does not reside in him, he does not enlighten him as to what comes off of the page of Scripture. So Satan sees things as the world sees them, not with the mind of Christ. And once we understand this, hundreds of pieces of the puzzle start to come together. The Apostle Paul talks about this and how if Satan had known what God was up to, he would have never crucified Jesus. One might say that, that God actually pulled the wool over Satan's eyes and fooled him. He deceived the deceiver. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. This is Paul writing. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age, Satan and his demons, his minions, his gargoyles, they, if they had seen what was in front of them, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. But they did. You see, the devil is always two steps behind. But he is always up to the same thing. The same thing that he has always been up to, to seek, to kill, and to destroy. The same thing that he's always been up to, to seek, to kill, and to destroy. He's been doing it since the very beginning of time. And he continues to do it. It's in his playbook. And so we need to know the enemy's playbook. In the opening pages of the Bible, God created two overlapping realms, the heavens and the earth, we are told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is where the drama of the biblical storyline takes place. Many of us who have grown up in the church, were familiar with maybe the human version of that storyline, of what happens in the Garden of Eden, how it played itself out there in the garden. So humankind is given this beautiful, wonderful place to live and rule. And on God's behalf, they are, they are put in charge over everything. But they lose access to this paradise because of a foolish rebellion. The biblical authors want us to see something there. That this set of characters, the inhabitants of the heavenly realm are actually there and are a part of the story who are very much involved in what is happening in the earthly timeline. In John chapter 8, verse 44, it says this. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning... Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks in his native language. He speaks in his native tongue, for he is a liar. And he is the father of lies. For lots of different reasons, we as modern readers, looking back at scripture that is 2,000 years old, when it is written down, and then even 2,000 years before that, we won't notice or the characters or don't know exactly how to make this and how we are to understand all of what's in front of us. And most of our modern portrayals of angels, as we understand them, or maybe fictitional uh, or mythical creatures kind of start to merge their way into it, we can't quite understand what is going on in this spirit realm. Our understanding of angels and demons is deeply misunderstood as compared to what the Bible actually says and what the biblical authors are actually trying to teach us about these creatures, these created beings. In Genesis chapter 3, we meet this created being who is in opposition of the creator, the maker of the universe, God. He has made all the created world, and He has made these beings as well, and this being as well. We haven't been told exactly why or how it happened, but as we kind of unravel things there in Genesis, we start to see that this particular being has rebelled against God Himself. And we can see that He is trouble. And He is the first example that we will find in Scripture of evil. He distorts evil what well, God has created for good and he ruins it. He damages it. He corrupts it. And he starts dragging creation back into darkness and disorder. Where God was making it all making it perfect and making it new, he's trying to drag and pull it back and pull it away. And when the humans, the Adam and Eve when they follow his trickery, they find themselves these created Beings find themselves, their lives, the lives of the entire human race as a result, your life and mine, are launched into a continual battle of chaos and pain and sickness and death. And the Bible teaches us as this battle rages on, it, it goes on over and over again, this, this, this battle where the great deceiver will manipulate and confuse the truth for a counterfeit truth, One where man is actually sitting on the throne of his life. And he has no business being there because God is God and we are not. And God has the rightful place on the throne. And again and again and again we see the enemy, the deceiver. We see him work in people's hearts and in their lives that they start to put themselves on the throne. And put themselves and say, I'm in charge of my own destiny. Instead of being properly oriented that God, the creator of the universe, actually resides on the throne. And so we see this back and forth of chaos and hope all the way through the Old Testament, all building up to the apex of this conflict, the birth of Jesus Christ. Satan can read, friends, Satan can read the same text that we have in front of us, and Satan can read and see. He can see from Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So he sets a trap. And here's what the enemy's trap looks like. He did not know the exact timing of the Savior's birth. They'd been waiting now for 400 years and so this, along with many of the other ways that he's trying to get ready, is these endless efforts that he is making to try to thwart the purposes of God. Satan pulls in demons from all around the world to concentrate in the Holy Land. We know that because when we look at Scripture and we see when Jesus is on the earth, we see all these different examples, all these prevalent stories of demon possession happening in the New Testament. Why is that? We believe that Satan is actually throwing everything that he possibly can to try to do all that he can. It almost seems like the devil actually had his demons outnumbering civilians at the time to make sure that he was always on the attack. They served as Satan's spies and were, were in charge with, of keeping an eye and keeping a watch out for a godly young couple that was about to have a baby. Satan was lying in wait for the Messiah. In the book of Revelation, we actually get a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. You see, we have the pretty little picture that is happening in front of us. Next week, we're going to have the children's pageant, and it'll be a very pretty little picture that we put together with that. But don't be deceived, friends. That's not exactly what's going on. It's not all little children gathered together in a stable. No, behind the scenes, we get a glimpse. And the book of Revelation tells us the real story what's going on behind the scenes. The battle that was being fought for the very state of all humankind. Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 says this. The dragon, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child at the moment he was born. This is what is going on behind the scenes where no one can quite see it. No one can quite understand what's going on. But there is a lot of movement that is happening behind the scenes. The devil is setting a trap. The devil is. The dragon, Satan, the one who is called Lucifer, was once an angel in heaven, eternally devoted to a heavenly king. That was the role that he once played. He was called one of the seraphim. So their job was, was to, to be these heavenly musicians who were leading in continuous worship around the throne. And then gathering there before the throne and giving all the praise and all the honor and all the glory towards the one who actually deserves and is worthy of worship and praise. And we find that Lucifer, Satan, the dragon, our enemy, that he rebelled against the throne of God and he tried to get others to worship him rather than the one who is actually worthy of of worship. Rather than the one whose true focus of the throne, the true focus, the one, the maker, the creator, the one who sits there on the throne, the creator of all things, he tried to grab some of that for himself. He was one of the seraphim. That was the name of his title in heaven. Interestingly, it is also the root word for the name that he is given when he is thrown to earth. Seraphim becomes the serpent. And so he is stripped of his wings. I don't know what that means necessarily. But he is stripped of his honor that he once had in heaven. He is thrown from heaven to earth. And it says here that a third of the angels, a third of the gargoyles, a third of whatever comes with the enemy were taken out of heaven and thrown to earth with him. And so now the dragon is about to pounce. He has set his trap. His full intentions are to devour the child the moment that it is born. But he couldn't find him. He couldn't find him because the enemy Satan is a, is unable to be all-knowing, all-present, all-knowledge. And so he couldn't find him. God had hidden the child. Where even a third of the previously heavenly creatures were now on earth searching, scouring the Holy Land to find him. And he, God, had pulled the wool over Satan's eyes. He had deceived the deceiver. God did this in a few different ways. Let me explain. The first thing that God did was he chose a man and woman not from Bethlehem. Meaning that they were not living and residing in Bethlehem. They were from Nazareth, which was to the north. Joseph, however, was a man with lineage that was from Bethlehem, but he did not typically reside there. He did not keep his carpentry shop in Bethlehem, and he wouldn't stay there after the birth of Jesus either. Secondly, what God did was actually to to build into the story the, the doubt. He saw to it that this woman's purity and her morality would be doubted. The way that things came together, the devil, he can count, and he can say there's going to be nine months between when this baby is conceived and when he arrives. But he had no way of knowing about Gabriel's visits to Mary, his visits to Joseph, and the miraculous conception of this new baby. He would never have been able to know that. He had no idea what was going on. If he had heard of this young Nazarene couple, he would have quickly discounted them because it would appear that the child had been born out of wedlock. Certainly he had remembered from heaven that God would never have, have allowed uh, his child to reside in someone who was a sinner for such a holy responsibility. And then the third thing he did was to arrange to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem just in time for The birth. But he did it in a way that was not to draw attention to themselves. So when Caesar Augustus puts the decree, puts out the call, puts out the census, they never had to return to their home cities, their home uh, towns to be counted. God was all part of this. God had put that idea in his heart. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says this The king's heart is like channels of water for the hand of the Lord, he will turn it wherever he wishes. God is in control. And so when Caesar Augustus says everyone must come home to be counted and to be taxed, he is doing it for a purpose and he doesn't even realize it. God is using him. Mary and Joseph were among thousands who were returning from their ancestral homes with a census. Perhaps the roads were gridlocked, whatever gridlock looks like in those days with a donkey and an ox or whatever. They were gridlocked. They were trying to get in. There's no way that this couple was the only couple seen coming over the hill because the devil would have noticed that. Now They were in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all of this primitive form of a rush hour. The Bethlehem's inns were all full. All the available homes were were all filled. This young couple took the only thing that was left available to them, the only thing that was offered, a stable. Luke 2, 7 says, She brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger, for there was no room for them in the inn. So if the devil's minions were out there looking, keeping an eye, if the gargoyles were at work, they would have dismissed this young couple this young family seemingly camping out in the barn, in the stable. they would have missed them, and for good reason. The God of the universe, the God of heaven. The God whom Satan had remembered serving when he was Lucifer in glory. There seems like a lot of different things would happen. But one thing he would know, that the God of heaven and all of his glory and all of his majesty would never have allowed his son, the child that was coming to save the world, to be born in a barn. Doubtless he had told his demons to be out checking the finest homes, to be out checking the most illustrious surroundings, to be outstanding parents. He's looking for all of those things because that's who would be the one to raise the Son of God, the Messiah. But the Lord fooled him. Remember the word of Paul. God had chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This is a basic lesson for us. And the way that spiritual warfare works. Because it just seems like Satan historically is incapable of grasping that God is going to continue to use the foolish things for the sake of his own glory. Even to this day, our secular minds won't imagine it. But when the Holy Spirit works in us, we see it clear as day. When Jesus was born, God prepared this welcoming Committee of all the lowly people on the planet. The lowest of the low, the shepherds. He, he brings them in primarily to reassure the young parents that all was well. And again, Satan missed it because they were unimportant. They were flying under the radar. They were dressed in a way he would have never considered. He had no way of seeing that the angels would have come there to all of the sheep herders that night. You have no clue on how to identify the baby. But they did. This will be a sign unto you, and you will find him where? Wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They knew exactly where to look. No one else noticed or cared when a small company of shepherds, ragtag shepherds, start running through the streets. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. What were they looking for? Stable. Stable. What's the big deal? A bunch of shepherds looking for a place to put their sheep. Later, after Joseph had moved out of that stable, I can't imagine he stayed there very long, he moved into a home there in Bethlehem. And somewhere between that birth age and the age of two years old, these foreign visitors arrived that we read about here in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi from the east. And they created a pretty big stir in Jerusalem when they came through. They naively announce the fact that they are looking for the one who is going to be born, the king of the Jews. And this is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because they actually are the guys that we typically think of as the three wise men. And they walk right into the king and they give it all away. They didn't keep it a secret at all. They go and tell the king, "We are looking for a king who is going to sit on the throne." I don't know if they had some type of royal agreement that when you come into the kingdom, you need to let somebody know that there's someone else coming. I'm not sure exactly why they did it. It seemed like there was foolish intentions as they did it. Some type of courtesy that they decided that they needed to share. But of course, Herod is upset. There's someone here that is going to take away his throne is what is understanding. The Magi find the child. They find the family. They give Mary and Joseph these expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh. These were gifts of incredible value. This lowly carpenter, the local carpentry shop, he would have never in his entire life seen wages that could have bought these gifts. Why did God do that? Because it would seem that these gifts would actually fund the trip, the sudden trip that he was going to have to make to Egypt. All of a sudden, he had armfuls of money to be able to make the trip that he needed to make in the middle of the night to take his family to Egypt. King Herod and all of his soldiers are after him, looking out to search and destroy. They're on a murder mission for a young child, and they walk right out of the city because they had all the resources they could possibly need. Satan would have been fuming to learn about this. To learn that the objects of his wrath, that the trap that he had been setting for years had been foiled. That they were making their way towards Egypt where they would remain until Herod's death. And then eventually when the Holy Family, when they make their way back, when Mary and Joseph and this baby make their way back, do they come to Bethlehem? No, they go to Nazareth. And he opens up his small business carpentry shop and goes completely undetected. Jesus grows up in a smallish town, a town of Nazareth. And he was not like the superboy in Smallville by any stretch of the imagination. He was not like doing magical things where his hometown folks were all talking about all the miracles that he performed or his mighty feats of valor or anything like that. They were not talking about him. He was unnoticed. Because if he had heard those words, if Satan had been paying attention, he would have come after this boy. But he didn't. No, the first that the devil hears about the identity of Jesus the day of his own demise. The day when Jesus wades out into the river, comes in chest deep into the waters of the Jordan, and he is there with John the Baptist. And John says this. When when he saw Jesus coming to him, he says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This will be the enemy's demise. The skies split open. The clouds go running in both directions and a voice comes thundering down from heaven and it says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased and it was on, And that's how everybody learned that the Messiah was Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus' baptism was his coming out party the gloves were off. God in heaven was saying, here he is, devil. Do your worst. Take your best shot. The game was afoot. The battle was joined. And what happened immediately after that, when we read it in Scripture, what happened? Jesus runs out into the wilderness and does battle with his enemy to attack him, to establish dominance To put him in his rightful place, to remind Satan of his lowly existence. Because do you remember what God said about Satan back in the garden? He said, Cursed are you, Satan. Above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust of the days, dust of the earth, for all the days of your life. And Satan has been prancing around, puffing his chest out, walking around this earth thinking that he was in control. And he takes Jesus to the top of a very high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, Matthew tells us, and all of their splendor. And he says to Jesus, tries to tempt him, tries to throw him, he says, all of this I will give you. If you will bow down, if you will make yourself prostrate, and you will worship me. The very thing that he was thrown out of glory for, And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. For it is written, you will worship the Lord your God. You will serve him only. He says, you're supposed to be on the ground. Get down. And the devil takes off running. Flees from him. Because he knows that this is his defeat. The enemy's defeat. The reality is that the enemy's defeat was never uncertain at all. It was always certain. It always was and always is absolute. Satan had already lost. End game. Close scene. It's over. He's a liar. He's a con artist. He wants you to give up. But you've already won. That's why this sermon series is so important for you to hear and to listen to. It's vital, in fact. Have you been listening? Two weeks ago, we described and we talked about how the Bible is God's word. It is true. You can believe what it has to say. It has authority over our lives. It never changes, but it will always change you. Last week, we talked about the supremacy of of God, the complexity of God, yes, the three in one, how does that work? The Trinity, the beauty that comes with that, and yet there's accessibility to God. God with us, Emmanuel. We are not alone, we are not helpless, we are not weak, we are not discouraged, we are not afraid. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We read in Romans chapter 8. We are not to be defeated. Our enemy is a liar. He's a con artist. He wants you to give up. He He wants to make you think that the one you are following, the one that you are hearing sermons about week in and week out, the one that you are reading in the Bible, is this guy in the super retro throwback hippie costume who's walking around with a baby lamb. That's what he wants you to think about the maker of the universe, the king of glory. But it's all a circus trick. And here's the truth. Here's how the Word of God describes the true king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, as he is galloping out of the clouds while all the angel armies are singing at the top of their lungs. Revelation chapter 9 verse 12 says this, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he knows himself. He is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood, his own blood. And on his his name is the Word of God. It's King Jesus, friends. It's King Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is King Jesus, friends. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. King Herod wasn't enough to stop him. The religious rulers of the day, they weren't enough to stop him. The betrayal of Judas, that was not enough to stop him. Pilate, he was not able to stop him. Death itself was not able to stop him. And so it began. So it began in a manger in Bethlehem. And it all came to a head. Thirty years later, on a hill outside of Jerusalem... For a couple of days, Satan threw himself a party. He reveled in his victory. And then one of his demons, one of his gargoyles, rushed into the room. It's all over. It's all over. As the band comes forward this morning, I want to remind us as we look at this text, the Magi is coming in, everyone is coming there to worship this baby, this child, because they had been given through the Holy Spirit, been given something that the enemy could not see. Do you remember what the angels said when they announced the birth of this child? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid afraid. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You do not need to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid of the dark. You do not have to be afraid of the shadows. You do not need to be afraid of your enemies. Why? He is the Messiah. This child, he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. And the angel tells them, This will be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a great company, a great multitude of heavenly hosts appearing with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. You don't have to be afraid, friends. The enemy is a con artist, a liar, and a deceiver. And he has tried every trick he can possibly think of. But glory to God in the highest. There will be peace on earth because the Messiah is here. So you stand with me this morning. We're going to sing a song. We're going to do a matter of transition. We're going to sing a song that the angels sang. And I'll move over to my guitar and I'll play along and we'll, we'll be able to sing that. But glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. As we sing those words, I want to remind us of who God is. To remind us who his son Jesus is. The one that we've been waiting for. You don't have to be afraid, friends. You don't have to be afraid of the dark. You don't have to be afraid of what's in the shadows. It's not naive to think that there's something out there, but it is foolish to think that it has any power over you. If you are here this morning and do not know and do not accept Jesus Christ as the gift that the Father has given to us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that gift, you do have something to be afraid of. Does Jesus reside in your heart? a simple thing. To be able to say, Jesus, I accept the gift that you've given. Change my life. Change my heart. I want the Messiah to reside in me. I don't want to be afraid anymore. And Jesus says, I will come in with you. I will dine with you. I will be with you. And we will spend the rest of our lives together eternally. That's the beauty of it.